Welcome everyone to The Scoop. We are here with Nikhil Aurora of the Department of Physics, Engineering, Physics and Astronomy here at Queen's University. Thank you for joining us, Nikhil. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, this is so exciting to have you. We've got a lot of really fun stuff to talk about, especially yeah. what's been happening in China. I understand that China successfully launched its Chang 5 lunar mission on Tuesday morning to collect some rock samples from the moon, the first attempt by any country since the early 1970s. And yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Yeah, um, it's going to be a very exciting time. Indeed. Uh, so, Nikhil, break it down for us. What is the purpose? of this new space mission? Yeah, um, so uh, the main idea over here is to basically understand and study those craters and splotches that we see on the moon when we look up at the moon. Um, these craters and splotches sort of are from back in the days when the solar system, all the planets and the sun and the moon and all other moons for the, all of the planets were being formed. So by studying these craters, we can really understand sort of the early times of the solar system and just get a look back into what was going on around that time. And so this Chinese Chang'e 5 mission is just another step towards sort of understanding our own formation and evolution of the earth and tied to it, the moon as well. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what makes this particular space mission uh, unique compared to other missions in, in recent years in terms of research? Right. Yeah, um, I think the unique part is that this is only the third time and the first time since 1976 that we will bring back samples from the moon. Um, these samples will allow us to really study um, the moon age, first of all, age the sample and understand what was going on around that time. Now, the samples that we're bringing back are also from, so quote unquote, a special place on the moon. Back in 1976, when the samples were returned, they were aged and they were found to be about 4 billion years old. Now, later on, studies of the moon found this special place on the moon called the Ocean of Storms, which seems to be pretty active in the craters that are sort of the asteroids that are hitting the moon and also seems to be a little bit of volcanic activity. And so just by far away study, that oceans of storm place has been aged to be about 1 billion years old. So bringing this sample back will one, allow us to confirm whether this number is right or not, but two, also give us an edge into sort of the later parts of the formation of the solar system. Picking up on that, you recently stated that uh, samples from the moon can allow us to learn about where we come from. Right. So what research yields can emerge from these moon samples that uh, might be new and different than what we already yeah. have? That's a great question. So when I said back in 1976, when the samples were returned, they were dated to be about 4 billion years old. Yeah. That's about just the start of our solar system. So that's when the Earth and the moon were being formed. Um, but as I said, that these new samples will be, yeah, are dated to be about a billion years old. And we think around that time on the earth, um, multicellular life started to evolve and develop. And so getting these samples will sort of give us an eye into this later time in the formation of our solar system, and maybe also understand what was going on in the moon and simultaneously intertwined on the earth as well. So that's the big part that will yield out of these 
samples. So as you mentioned, it's been, well, since 1976, so about 44 yeah, I, years since the last moon mission with uh, personnel, astronauts, uh, bringing back samples uh, from the moon. Though I'm hazarding a guess, uh, guess that uh, today's technology is uh, quite a bit better. Have there been uh, moon missions without personnel since 1976? Yeah. And why are moon missions so rare? Yeah. Um, yeah, so the technology is definitely a lot better today. We are sitting at least a few kilometers apart and zooming. So you can imagine, just take that exponentially into aeronautics. And yeah, the technology is much better. Um, and since then, we've been been to the moon quite a bit of time. Since 1976, if I counted right, there have been about 23-odd missions that landed or orbited the moon by multiple different countries. So you can count Japan, India, Israel, Russia, China, and U.S. And all of these different uh, missions have sort of tried to study special aspects of the moon going all the way from the far side of the moon, which is the darker side of the moon, to the near side of the moon and understanding the geology of the moon, so to say. Um, I think moon missions, so 23, as I said, since 1976 is not enough. We in science always have a thirst for knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, they've, they've become rare. And I think a part of the reason why they've become rare is just because of how booming astrophysics as a field is. I think we only have limited funding. And at one point of time, we have to focus our funding in multiple di two different places. And I think not that the moon is not exciting, but there have been certain far away enough events or interesting things that we have sort of started to understand. And that's why missions to the moon have become slightly more rare than they should be, in my opinion. Okay, so as a scientist that uh, re does research in areas including the contour and contents right. of galaxies, yeah. uh, what is fascinating about the moon for you? It's a little rock in the sky. Huh, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the biggest things, um, maybe this pie in the sky, just like the moon, but one of the cool things would be to actually put a station on the moon with a telescope. Um, when we study uh, the cosmos from the earth, we are really limited by our atmosphere and the ambient light from the cities. And so having something on the moon, is just going to exponentially better our technology and our data that we get out of it. So that, once again, it's, it's just a dream that I have, but maybe putting up a telescope on the moon might be a really interesting thing. That would uh, be quite fascinating, and I hope to interview you someday as the lead scientist <laughs> making that happen, or the astronaut going to the moon to, yeah, I don't know, set be, it up. <laughs> yeah, that would be a lot more fun. Yes, there, we are again getting interested into the moon, of course, and so just in the next five years, I've counted to be about there to be about 20 missions that are funded and planned. So yeah, moon has become another interesting area of science research. And yeah, if you will not be surprised if there are many more trips to the moon in the coming days. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Nikhil, for joining us in the virtual studio today to talk about this uh, new moon mission, Chang 5 moon mission that China launched on Tuesday morning, uh, November 23rd. We really do yeah, appreciate thank you for time. having me.
Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scoop, and I am in the virtual studio today with Tandy Thomas, Associate Professor at the Smith School of Business, as well as Distinguished Faculty Fellow of Marketing. Welcome to The Scoop. Hi, thanks for having me. We've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about, really interesting stuff, given that Black Friday is approaching. Uh, and we're going to talk about Black Friday and what businesses are going to be doing. <laughs> so, uh, Tandy, I understand your research lies at the intersection of consumer culture theory and social psychology. And you look at the interplay between consumers, their social contexts, and marketing activities. Uh, so you are very well placed to talk about some of the issues related to uh, how people behave <laughs> during uh, events like Black Friday. And yes, as we said, it is approaching. And in the past, we've witnessed uh, some pretty significant spectacles, including like, massive long lines and crowds of people rushing through doorways and flooding stores and, and, and the workers therein to be the first to uh, grab this or that normally high-end item. And sometimes there's even been acts of violence between customers as well. Well, as an expert in the field, what drives this kind of behavior among consumers? Uh, well, here there's, I think there's two things that come into play. There's this idea of sort of scarcity, like there's only a few of these items and I want to snag that deal and the value is there. So there's the scarcity combined with almost the, the gamification of it. So this now becomes a challenge that you have to win and you have to beat out other consumers. Um, so it becomes almost like a game of sport. Um, and so consumers get caught up in this and there's this goal that they're trying to achieve and they get caught up in the moment and the whole system is geared around um, building up to this moment and there's rituals associated with it and families plan and they pull out the, the catalog, uh, catalogs and now I'm dating myself. Um, and so they look at what the deals are and the coupons, they plan their strategy and they'll have teams of the family and like this part of the team over here and this part of the team over here and they'll map out the routes through stores. Um, and so there is this build up to this big crescendo and then um, sometimes you see things turning ugly. Yeah. <laughs> Tempers flare. Okay, so it seems to me this craze reaches pretty far back, in fact, even to from the 90s, Tickle Me Elmo and Cabbage Patch Kids in the 80s. Has the hysteria for consumer deals, in fact, worsened in the last decade and why? Well, I think the hysteria is different. So every, um, it seems like just about every year, um, there is some kind of hot item. Um, usually around the Christmas season. So Cabbage Patch Kids, Tickle Me Elmo. Um, the Furby. The Furby and the Hatchimals and all these noisy toys that I now hide from my children. <laughs> um, but there's always this, there's the toy that kids want. Um, and again, then this, this fury is, it's driven by this idea of scarcity. Um, and so there's only a limited number of Cabbage Patch Kids, a limited number of Tickle Me Elmo's. How am I going to get one? It's the thing that my kid wants. Um, I need to somehow figure out a way to outsmart other consumers to get this scarce item. Um, and so whenever you have that combination of this perception of scarcity for something that is considered to be valuable, whether it's valuable because it's the hot item, whether it's valuable because it's on some kind of crazy discount, um, you start seeing people get pent up and getting getting anxious and acting in this extremely competitive way, which they normally would not do. 
Um, we have to keep in mind that most of the time, most of the people who are engaged in these behaviors are perfectly normal, lovely people who would never do these things until they're in, put in this sort of um, artificial world with this scarcity and this gamification and this competition. Okay, so you've recently noted uh, Black Friday will be different this year and we won't see the same kind of in-person shopping hysteria that enthralls uh, consumers year by year, typically. I'm guessing the pandemic has a lot to do with that. So what are retailers doing this Black Friday to, well, keep up the momentum and their profit margins? So, well... Retails, especially large retailers, are actually remarkably well set up to handle the challenges that the pandemic has um, presented. Um, because what we've seen over the past few years is there has been this trend to more and more shopping happening online um, with Black Friday sales online, um, Black Friday sales, and of course Cyber Monday sales. Um, but also thinking about it, Black Friday is no longer just about the day. It's now, it used to be like a couple of days for the Black Friday sale. And then it became sort of the week of Black Friday. Um, and now we've even seen it extend a little bit to pretty much the month of Black Friday. Um, so this year, these trends are magnified because so much of our world is happening online. Um, but it's very consistent with what's been happening over the past few years as we've seen this push towards more and more happening online. Um, so for many retailers, it's just taking, um, it's taking a step they would have taken anyway, maybe it's just a little bit bigger than they would have taken under normal circumstances, but it's completely aligned with what has been happening. Um, so it's quite serendipitous that it played out that way. Okay. Um, what we will see is with the in-person shopping, it's going to be obviously more of a challenge because retailers have to put in place um, infection control mitigation measures. Um, which means that they won't be, that, that kind of hysteria and mad rush just cannot happen. Um, or at least I hope it doesn't happen. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, and so there's that, that challenge that's, that's being put in place. So how about the smaller independent businesses? How are they going to fare within this milieu? Well, smaller independent businesses always have a hard time competing with the big box stores. Um, this is going to be, and then it's, as we know, throughout this pandemic, they are the ones that have been hit the hardest. They will continue to be the ones that hit the hardest. And there's no sort of secret source to helping them get through this. Um, we know that there's many big boxes, stores, in the case of lockdowns, they're able to stay open, whereas the smaller retailers cannot because they're more specialized and wouldn't fall into the category of an essential service. Mm -hmm. um, and then they also don't necessarily have the infrastructure to be able to shift to an online, a full online kind of structure. So if you think about sort of your local toy store, um, what's likely happening there is they, they may have had an online store before. If they didn't before, they probably do now, but they've only been running it for six to eight months. And their um, delivery structure is likely the owner and maybe one or two employees getting all these goods together and putting them in their car and driving it around town and dropping it off on people's front steps. And if we compare that to the kind of infrastructure that you could see, you'd expect from one of the, from a major retailer or even an online retailer like Amazon, the competition, the, it's not even, I don't even know if it's fair to call it competition at this point in time. 
they're two completely different beasts. Okay. So do you um, have any advice for those small businesses to uh, keep up and even catch up on their losses from earlier this year even? Well, I think I'd say that my advice wouldn't be to the small businesses. I think they are fighting tooth and nail just to stay stay in the game as best they could. My advice would be more towards consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. That the effort has to be on the part of the consumer to step up and support their local businesses. Um, and that's hard to do because it's very, very easy to open up the Amazon app on your phone and click on the Black Friday deal and then it has arrives on your doorstep within 24 hours. Um, but maybe resist that urge and think a little bit Maybe instead of buying that hot toy from Amazon, buy that hot toy from your local retailer. It might take a couple of extra days. Their website might not be quite as convenient as the Amazon app. Um, But helping out that retailer is a great thing that a consumer could do. So I think at this point, the onus is really on each and every one of us to make those choices about who we're going to support and how we can support them, um, as opposed to completely putting the onus on the retailer for having to come up with some kind of fantastic strategy in the worst of times that could that could help them. Okay. So now with this past year where uh, many, if not the majority of consumers have now reverted to uh, online measures in order to buy the goods that they want, because in some cases, some places were shut down <laughs> during the pandemic. Do you anticipate that online shopping is going to, it's no longer a trend, is it going to continue to be the reality and the common practice? I do. Um, I do, absolutely. Um, There will always be um, some version of in-person things happening. We are a um, we are a society that's driven by interpersonal interactions. And as I think we've all realized over the past few months, we crave those interpersonal um, um, interpersonal interactions. Um, but the online trend, it was strong before. It certainly wasn't going anywhere. Um, it is stronger now. Um, and we are going to see our world fundamentally shift in these kinds of ways. More things are going to happen online, um, whether it's shopping, but also looking at like working from home. A lot of companies who had never thought about doing that before suddenly realized, huh, this actually works. Um, so let's keep doing that. That's going to have that's going to have implications downstream for things like downtown cores and office spaces, as well as the retailers that are serving those downtown communities. So I think there will be a shift. Um, we will never go back to um, go back to before. And um, so there's a big question of what is after going to look like. All right. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking to Tandy Thomas from the Smith School of Business all about Black Friday and what businesses are going to be doing uh, uh, in light of COVID-19. Thank you very much, Tandy, for joining us in the virtual studio. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.